right, so tonight our topic is on food and drink as it comes up in Luke's gospel. Uh, Jesus throughout Luke's gospel moves his way from one feast table to another. And so many of Jesus's parables are told at a table while he's eating with people. And we see him eat with everybody from uh, the tax collectors and prostitutes to Pharisees, religious leaders. Uh, Jesus really doesn't discriminate when it comes to who he will share a meal with. And I guess if you're a homeless prophet, you get a meal wherever you can, whenever you can. Um, so, but anyway, Luke uses food and drink in such unique ways in his story. And so tonight we're going to see three major ways that Luke uses food and drink. And in true uh, preacher fashion, they all start with an E. So I couldn't resist. The first way that he uses food and drink, sitting at table with each other, like we just talked about, was to educate. And this means that literally the, the place of being at the table with people and sharing a meal is an opportunity for Jesus to do some teaching. I love this parable. Um, it's unique to Luke's gospel. And in other gospels, we get a story about a woman coming and anointing Jesus with oil. And in the other gospels, she's doing it in preparation for his burial, but not in Luke's gospel. In Luke's gospel, it actually comes very early. It's in chapter seven. And the woman only comes because she loves Jesus. She's a sinner. And of course the Pharisee who sees this happening is just scandalized. And he says to himself, if this man were really a prophet, if this Jesus was really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman was touching him. And I want you to notice something is that Jesus says to the Pharisee, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon replies, teacher, speak. And I think that that is a really pivotal part of this whole passage, it comes right in the middle. We have all of this buildup with this woman coming where Jesus is and she's, she's pouring oil on his feet. She's bathing his feet with her tears and drying them with her hair. And now Jesus understands that there's something with the way this Pharisee is seeing this and taking this in. And it's at this moment where the Pharisee calls Jesus teacher. He doesn't call him that at the beginning, it's right here teacher speak. And this all is taking place at the table. And Jesus tells this parable about there's two people who have a debt and one owes a lot more than the other. And so of course, the one that owes more and is forgiven of that will be all the more grateful and will, will love the forgiver of that debt even more. And then he uses this moment and he says to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, but you didn't give me water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. And therefore I tell you her sins, which were many have been forgiven because she has shown great love. And to, but to the one whom little is forgiven, they love little. And I just think this is such a perfect way that Luke shows us a window into why he uses these table scenes. 
there's so much emotion here. There's so much uh, human connection going on. There's issues of who eats with whom. There's issues of clean and unclean. There's issues of who loves and accepts and welcomes. All of this takes place at the table and Jesus exploits the table by making it his classroom, by making it the place that he can show people what he means by the kingdom of God. Um, when we talk about the kingdom of God, it's only in Luke's gospel that in the passage where Luke describes Jesus feeding the 5,000 in Luke chapter nine, it says that he welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. And I want you to notice that and notice how interesting that is that only Luke's gospel mentions that he's teaching them about God's kingdom and the feeding miracle where he multiplies the bread and the loaves and has them distributed happens after Luke tells us that Jesus is teaching them about the kingdom of God. In some way, I think that we're meant to interpret the miracle of the multiplication of the loaves as the object lesson, the demonstration that goes with the verbal teaching about the kingdom of God that Jesus gives them. Another time later in Luke chapter 14, it says on one occasion when Jesus was going to the house of the leader of a Pharisee to eat a meal on the Sabbath, he was noticing how the guests were choosing the places of honor. And then he told them a parable. And this is also interesting because it shows Jesus as an observer at the table. What happens when you have Jesus come as a guest? He's not just there to eat, but he's also there sort of taking over the host's responsibilities. Jesus sort of moves in and he's really a terrible guest. He decides that he's going to educate everyone here. And so he hijacks the host's role of being able to structure conversation and things like that. And Jesus says, no, you know what? Ultimately, I am the host of the table. The table that Jesus is setting with his teachings, the table that Jesus is creating in his community, Jesus is the host of that table. And so he sees every table as his own opportunity to demonstrate what he means by this kingdom of God. And then also unique to Luke, and in the end, after we get the resurrection story, two of Jesus's disciples are on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus is incognito, they don't recognize him. And yet it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in the scriptures. As they came near to the village where they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly saying, stay with us because it's almost evening and the day is nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread, he blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? Now, here's what I want you to notice about this is that Jesus had been teaching them about the scriptures while they're on the road, while they're walking with Jesus, this mystery guy who seems to know everything about them and everything about the scriptures, uh, but they still can't guess who it is. As they're walking with him, he's explaining all of these things, but it's not until he sits at the table and he has a meal with them 
that all of the learning that they've been doing actually comes to completion, actually reaches its goal. And we could be tempted to think the teaching happened on the road, the meal happened at the table, but I really think that the meal at the table is the culmination, it's the climax of how they were taught. And we know this because this is how Jesus has been teaching throughout this gospel. It's in the context of meals, it's sharing a table, it's telling stories while they're passing the food, it's using the food itself as a way of communicating with other people. And so because Luke has this pattern that we've already seen throughout his gospel, when we look at this, this training, you might say that the disciples get is they understand you cannot separate what you talk about and what kind of table fellowship you have. I don't think that it's a coincidence that when Luke writes his sequel, Acts, that we get this picture of the early Christian community and the two things that it says they do is that they break bread together and they devote themselves to the apostles teaching and to the reading of scripture. That this meal happening here on the road to Emmaus is the training, it's the, um, the, the on the job teaching as it were that the disciples get from Jesus himself. If you want to know how to really teach people, this is what you do. These are the elements that you incorporate. The second role that table fellowship, this eating and drinking uh, plays in Luke's gospel is that it is ecclesial. And what I mean by that is that it has to do, it demonstrates the nature and the function of the church. Um, Luke, of course, like we just said, he not only writes the gospel, but then he goes on to write Acts, which is about the early church and it's spread throughout the Mediterranean. And so we can see that there's a really um, intimate link between the table being a place of education where people are taught about the kingdom and the table being a place where their identity as the church is created. I want us to go back to the passage in Luke chapter nine, where Luke tells us the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And I wanna correct myself a little bit when I say Jesus feeding the 5,000, because if we look closely, it's not Jesus feeding the 5,000. Um, in um, the middle of the story, after we've talked about Jesus teaching them about the kingdom of God, he's healing people. Uh, the text says that the day was drawing to a close and the disciples come to Jesus and say, we're going to have to send the crowd away so they can go buy some food somewhere else because we're out here in the middle of nowhere. But Jesus says to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, well, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we're to go buy food for all these people. And there were at least 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of 50 each. They did so and made them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And all ate and were filled. I want you to notice that the real miracle part is the disciples distributing this food. Uh, Jesus breaks it this one time, but how many times does this food get broken? How many baskets get passed around? 
the food that makes its way to the people when these 5,000 people are fed, the vehicle by which this happened are these 12 disciples. And Jesus includes them in this miracle. This is them learning what the identity of the church is meant to be. And especially since it, they're continuously referred to as the 12. And that number in the Bible is uh, the, the notion of the fullness of the people of God. So the 12 tribes of Israel is the fullness of the people of Israel. The 12 disciples ends up being symbolic of the fullness of the church. And so when we see that 12 here, we know, oh, there's something in this passage that's communicating to us what our identity as Christ followers communally is meant to be. And I do believe that this notion of distributing God's goodness, of feeding people, both literally and figuratively, but I love that Jesus could have done it all himself. He could have been the ultimate bread giver. And yet he passes on this identity to his disciples and says, this is what your job will be even after I'm no longer here doing it physically and in person. Another way that these feeding table fellowship, food and drink passages operate in Luke's gospel is that it really shows not just what the function of the church is going to be, but what its makeup is going to be, what its nature is going to be, and what that means is ultimately this is going to be opened up to the Gentiles so that the church is not just one people that the Lord has called to himself, but all peoples. And this is one of Luke's really big thrusts. Luke, Luke is just really excited by the fact that people from all over the world, be they Jew or Gentile, be they um, uh, rich or poor, this is a kingdom of God where everyone is welcome. And this is another passage that we get uh, that's very unique. Now, Matthew has a similar passage to this, where Jesus gives instructions to his disciples as he's sending them out to do their own mission work. But Luke adds some things that Matthew does not. And I want us to just remember one of the differences in Matthew's gospel is that Matthew's was being written to a predominantly and primarily Jewish Christian community, whereas Luke's is being written to a very mixed population of both Jews and Gentiles already in the church. So notice what Jesus says. He says, uh, carry no purse, no bag, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. And if anyone is there who shares in peace, your peace will rest on that person. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves to be paid. Do not move about from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and its people welcome you, eat what is set before you. Cure the sick who are there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now notice how twice in this passage, Jesus not only says, but then re-emphasizes, eat whatever you are given. Matthew does not say this at all. In fact, Matthew says, choose a house based on who is worthy. Jesus says, eat whatever you are given, which for a, a law abiding Jew is problematic. What if these people don't keep a kosher diet? 
What if they are not following the regulations? What if the, the people in this town are Gentiles? What if they ask us to eat, give us something that they don't know we can't have? Jesus says, eat whatever they give you. Meaning that there is some kind of meaning, some kind of signal in the fact that you are willing to eat what they give you. The fact that you are taking in something of theirs and the fact that you are curing them and the fact that you are teaching them that there's this mutuality. You allow them to give to you and you give to them and trust that God is sovereign over all of it. And that's a really, it's one of those things that to our modern ears, when we hear eat whatever is placed before you, we think be polite. You know, um, if they're feeding you liver and onions and you don't like liver and onions, you eat the liver and onions. Uh, that's how we would hear this. But for them, this could be a huge identity crisis. How do we make sense of our identity as Jews and also do this? Jesus is pointing to a much bigger, broader canopy of we're not just talking about being Jews. We're talking about being part of God's family. And if someone else is also in God's family, then you do what family does and you sit at the table and eat together. And so these kind of passages are really demonstrative of some of Luke's broader goals. And these are also the paving stones for how we get to the story in Acts, where all of a sudden Gentiles are being baptized, they're being filled with the Holy Spirit, and they are be becoming a substantial part of the church. In fact, there's also this particular line that Luke includes that is unique to only Luke. And he says, people will come from the east and west, from north and south, and will eat in the kingdom of God. Indeed, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. And I want you to just think about what the geography of where the story is set. So if you think about where Judea is, where Israel is in the Middle East, if you go south, you're in Egypt and in Africa. If you go uh, east, you're further into Asia, you're in Persia. If you go north, you're in Turkey. If you go west, you're in Greece and Italy and Spain. And so by these kinds of things, notice how it's they'll eat together. All of these people from Europe, from Asia, from Africa, from all of these places are going to be coming together. And the church is the place where all these people meet. That's what we call that place. When all the people come together, all those people are the assembly. They're called out from all other places into this fellowship. And so of course, I had to talk about Acts just a little bit um, because when we finally get to Acts chapter 11, Peter is talking about this encounter that he has had with the Gentiles. And I want you to just notice how this plays out. Now, the apostles and believers who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also accepted the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him saying, why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? Notice how the problem was not that he baptized them, but that he ate with them. 
And then Peter began to explain it to them step by step saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying and in a trance, I saw a vision. There was something like a large sheet coming down from heaven being lowered by its four corners and it came close to me. And as I looked at it closely, I saw four footed animals, beasts of prey, reptiles and birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, get up Peter, kill and eat. But I replied, by no means, Lord, for nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered from heaven, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times. And then everything was pulled up again to heaven. At that very moment, three men sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were. The spirit told me to go with them and not to make a distinction between them and us. Now that's a really powerful story. This story about Peter essentially being told to disregard what was in his Bible. The fact that the, his Bible says, don't eat these things. And God is saying, what I have made clean, you must not call profane. Now, of course, what God's really talking about isn't so much the food as it is the kinds of people that eat this food. And the spirit tells Peter, do not make distinctions between you and them. So we see this, this beautiful gathering in that we see starting in Luke. People will come from the east and west, north and south and eat in the kingdom of God. And then that's exactly what we get when we get to Acts chapter 11. Another way that this eating and drinking shows us the ecclesial sort of dream that God has for us is seen in Luke's particular rendition of the Last Supper. Luke does a couple things in his Last Supper story that none of the other gospel writers do. One of the things that I love, that I just absolutely cherish, is that it's only in Luke's gospel that Jesus tells his disciples that he has eagerly desired to eat this meal with them. Like, I just love the fact that Jesus says, I have wanted to eat this meal with you so desperately. The fact that Jesus had been anticipating sitting at table with these disciples who he has walked with, who he has loved, who he has taught. I love the fact that he looked forward to this meal. Luke is also the only one to, to use the term suffer. Jesus says, I have desired to eat this meal with you before I suffer. And I want you to just notice that because as soon as he talks about this meal, he takes the cup and he says, divide this among yourselves. I think that's meant to recall that feeding miracle that we saw, right? Where Jesus doesn't just hand it to each person. He says, you take it as a group and give it, distribute it among yourselves. And then he takes the, the loaf of bread and does the same. And he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That is unique to Luke. It is only in Luke that we get Jesus telling his disciples, remember me by doing this. In all of the other gospels, he makes the, 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 you know, this is my body that is broken for you, or I won't eat this again until I, I eat it in the new kingdom. But only in Luke's does he give them instructions for how they are to do it in the future as a group. 
And I think that that really right there is very much an image of what the church is supposed to look like. So essentially it's supposed to do these two things. The church takes in the suffering of Jesus because that's what he's talking about. This meal is my body being broken and my blood being poured out. This is my suffering. And you, my disciples, the church, the people of God, our job is to consume that. We take in the suffering of Jesus together. Now that looks like a lot of different things. I think in some ways it means we take in the suffering of the world. I think in some ways we take up our cross. We take up for others. But essentially what we do each time that we share in communion is we are taking the suffering of Jesus Christ into our own bodies and saying that it has become part of us. It's become part of who we are and also how we relate to each other. The second thing that they're instructed to do that we can see as part of the church's job is that they're supposed to actually reassemble him. That's what to remember me means. Put all of the pieces back together. In some sense, we recreate this, not just when we take communion, but whenever we're gathering together, whenever we're sharing food and drink, whenever we're being who we are together, we are remembering Jesus. We are putting that night back together and putting who Jesus is in all of the, the parts of us. When we come together, we reassemble the body of Jesus. And I think that's really important because it reminds us that we don't just participate in church so that we are loved or we are taught or we are fed but because we are a vital part of that being um, made for everyone else. And so I love that Jesus has built in this responsibility to the church, that this is um, not just a ritual you're participating in, but this is how you are actually reconstructing Jesus in the flesh every time y'all are at the table together. Now, the final E, so we've had our, the table is where Jesus educates. The table is the symbol of the ecclesial unity, the churches being one, but the table has huge eschatological dimensions in Luke's gospel. And when I say eschatological, I don't really mean like the end of all time, but the way Luke understands this is when God's fullness has come, has arrived when the messianic time is here and we are living in the new era of human beings, which I think Luke believes he is. Um, Jesus has come, the Messiah is, has arrived, and human beings are now learning how to live as human beings were always intended to live, that we're living in a new era. And so one of the things that Luke does a lot is he reaches back to Isaiah. It's his favorite prophet. He quotes Isaiah every chance he gets. And in, especially in third Isaiah, in that last uh, 10 or so chapters of Isaiah, the, the real 
message that Isaiah has is that we'll know when this messianic time comes. We'll know when this time of Jubilee comes. We'll know when everything has finally been made right by God. How? When everyone comes to the table. I want you to just listen to these first five verses from Isaiah 55. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you that have no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen so that you may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. See, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. See, you shall call nations that you do not know, and nations that do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. This notion of all the nations of the Gentiles coming to Israel was the eschatological sign. We know, we will know that that's when the world has started being made right, when all the nations are coming to Israel because they see Israel's God and they want to be part of what's going on. And we'll know that we're in that time when we're all eating together. All of those divisions and dichotomies of Jew and Gentile and rich and poor, all those things will start fading away. That's how we'll know that we're living in this glorious time. So that's what um, Luke is reading. And he's, he's hearing this in Isaiah and he says, that's what we're seeing. The fact that Jesus says, eat whatever is provided. The fact that all these people are coming together and they're eating and that this is the symbol of the kingdom of God, that's how we know we are living in the reign of the Messiah. And that also tells us, gives us a, an interpretive key to all of these passages about eating and drinking. We can go back to all of these and realize that they all have this eschatological view, meaning it's not just about this one issue right here and right now. This passage is about something far more cosmic, something far more weighty. Um, so we go back to, um, we, we had a teaser uh, for this earlier, when Jesus is noticing how the guests are choosing places of honor. If we go back to that passage and we read it now, I think you're going to hear that eschatological view. It's not just about this banquet. He tells them this parable. When you're invited by someone to a wedding banquet, don't sit down at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. And the host who invited both of you might come to you and say, you better give this person your place. And then in disgrace, you would start to take the lowest place. When you're invited, go sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he can say to you, friend, move up higher, and then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And so what this is doing is this asks again that question that we had at the beginning, who's the host of all these meals? And I think that Luke's, in Luke's view, it's God. 
God is the one that sets the table. God is the one that makes all these things possible. And so we should be approaching every table we sit at, every meal that we eat, believing that God is the one who has set this table. God is the one who has provided the elements. And God is also the one who's invited everyone else who's at the table. And then that should be how we determine where do I take my seat? Well, if I'm at God's table, I'm going to sit at the lowest spot, right? And so it's, it's interesting that we get this view where we thought that Jesus is a bad guest, but I think Jesus is just, no, I'm just really am the host. I really am the one who sets the table. And so Luke gives us a parable of what happens when we disregard that. And I would be remiss as a Baptist preacher to not talk about the fact that the eschatological use of the table also brings with it an eschatological judgment. So we talked about this parable last week. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. And even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, child, remember that during your lifetime, you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner evil things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides this, between you and us is a great chasm that's been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. So I want you to notice how in this passage, we have this notion that this rich man has been dining and feasting and having this wonderful time at the table and at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus. Now we might overlook something here. These men are actually being described somewhat parallel because when it talks about a rich man feasting sumptuously every day, this was at a table called a triclinium, which was in a shape of a triangle. And you didn't sit at it, you laid next to it. There would be three long sort of fainting sofas and you would lie next to the table. So it was this very um, hedonistic type of banqueting. Like you can't even bother to sit up. You have to lie back. You can sort of picture people feeding them things. And you, you have someone who reaches out and gets your goblet for you. You don't even have to lean over and get things. So one man is lying by a table where people are just feeding him more than he ever needs to eat. And another man is lying also but out by the gate. And instead of being fed, the dogs are licking his sores. Both of these men are being at table in Luke's vision. They are both partaking of a particular kind of life. And what happens because of what they've done in this life, what's happened to them and what they've been responsible for 
in the context of table fellowship, Lazarus receives judgment and eternal judgment. And I think that's, that's very interesting because Luke um, is connecting very concrete things that we do that we can have control over, like who we eat with and who we provide food for, to our actual eternal judgment. Um, not always a terribly popular message, but here we have it. And if we want to think that we can not deal with it, notice how the parable ends. Then Lazarus says, not Lazarus, the rich man says, Father Abraham, I beg you to send Lazarus to my father's house for I have five brothers that he may warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. So there is this notion, because we have this term repent, that there is something that people in this lifetime are responsible for, and particularly the church. Those who are Christ followers are responsible for how they set the table, for who they invite to the table, for what they place before people and whom they allow to partake. And so uh, this does end on this issue of judgment. Now I'm not going to say that it's hell, but that there is a responsibility. There is an accountability that we have that we see ourselves as those people who have been fed by Jesus, maybe in that gathering of 5,000 people. We have received bread. We have received life that we did not provide for ourselves. We have been invited to a table that has been set for us. And so therefore we are now held responsible and accountable for how we set this table, both literally and figuratively for the world. And Jesus has entrusted this to us. This is something that Luke wants us to see was part of Jesus's ethos, part of the way that he lived, part of the way that he died. And so this is the part of Jesus, that suffering mission of Jesus that we take into us, just like in the Last Supper, and that will eventually come out of us and be distributed to the rest of the world. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Your Week with St. Luke's, our Office Hours podcast. And we are back, um, all of us pastors, along with Dr. E.B. Arnold, who um, has shared a wonderful lecture with us this week. And we're going to follow up talking a little bit more about many of our favorite topics, food and drink and banquets and all of the ways that we, uh, we, we see food and eating and whatnot in the Gospel of Luke. So what is it that we need to, to think about food and drink? Because we all probably have some, some thoughts on that. <laughs> yeah, we all have thoughts on it because it's something we all do. We all eat and drink as long as we are living, breathing human beings. Um, which I think is really the, the central issue, um, remembering that Luke is casting Jesus as the ultimate human being, 
Um, when Jesus dies on the cross in Luke's gospel, the centurion does not say, surely this was the son of God. He says, surely this was a righteous man. It, this was a real human being. This is a person who gets what it means to be fully human and obedient. Um, everything that, that humans were created by God to do and be, Jesus is it. Um, and so it's interesting that this Jesus, he just eats and drinks his way through the gospel, <laughs> basically right. up, up to the cross. That's Sounds what great. he does. Sounds he, great. I can follow <laughs> Jesus now. Great. <laughs> and when you ask, you know, who does he eat with? Well, who doesn't he eat with? Um, we see him first eating with tax collectors and prostitutes. Then we see him eating with religious leaders and Pharisees and um, it, he says, people think I'm a, a, a drunken and a, and a, a glutton because I, I eat and drink a lot. I don't, don't hold back. Um, and so it's really interesting that Jesus being the savior for the whole world, you know, that Luke wants to portray him as, and being this ultimate human being, Jesus eats with everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's one of the basic foundations of the Christian church was when Jews and Gentiles began to worship, the fact that they would eat together was breaking all of the assumptions and all the rules about how people, you know, could fellowship um, because it was so symbolic, you know. And what I wonder is, is food and drink and who eats with whom and what they eat, is this also an issue for the church today? Right. Maybe not in the same way as in the Bible's world, but do we still have those issues? I'd like to think that a lot of those kind of issues are falling away. I mean, we went about two years with nobody going to restaurants, period, right? <laughs> yeah. but, um, but that when you see, you know, somebody walk into a place, pe people don't start gossiping and saying, I'd like to think that that's not the world we live in now. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I could be naive to that, that, that there's less of uh, those social norms and walls that are, that are around as much. Now, that's just culturally. And when we think about the church, um, I don't know if that's a different um, different game. I, I don't know that the I don't know that we have the direct understanding anymore of of breaking of bread together with people being the issue in the same way, you know, there were so many taboos around, you know, what is eaten and who, and all of that and, and who's sitting at a table. I think we still have that understanding of who, who do you see someone with? And so often the places we are seen are things like restaurants. Mm -hmm. So I think that is still there. Um, and I will say that if, if I'm sitting down to a meal with someone, I do think that indicates a different kind of relationship you know, I, I think it's either a meeting, and so I've, I've engaged in a relationship somewhere with someone for a reason. So there's a re you don't randomly usually sit down to a meal with someone. So I think, I think there is something to be said about that. But I think it's a different, a different framework than our first century folks would have had. But, but you're right, that intention. If I'm sitting down to a meal with you, it's probably not an accident. Right, hmm. right. And I think there's a still that sense culturally, too, of will I be invited to go eat with someone or will I be left out? I think there's still an in and out. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's a it's a a, a, a stratosphere of mm -hmm. a, a strata a stratosphere of of, you know, 
lepers or sinners or things like that as much as just am I am I am I in am I in in, in the crowd do I get invited to this do I get to invited to the table and who are we as the church inviting to our tables you know and and is it, if it's the same people all the time going out as the church are we really being the church when there's a lot of people that we don't invite to go to the brunches with us and things like that I think that's a, a question and I would also kind of turn it on its head of um, who the fact that we miss that there's people that don't not only not have a seat at the table, but don't have food to eat at the table. Mm-hmm. That I think Jesus would be horrified in, in Luke's gospel, especially <laughs> at the amount of people that the church is ignoring that do not have food, mm-hmm. period. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's interesting. It, it was this way for Jesus, I guess, possibly, but also... Uh, when we think about today, yes, we talk about who's invited from to the table in a way that folks who would traditionally not be invited. But also you have that kind of weirdness of if we think about big tent thinking of sitting at a table with somebody uh, who uh, folks who are oppressed might say, oh, you should not be eating with them because they are actively an oppressor. And once again, that kind of space of grace in people's journeys, I just it, it, all, it gets all sticky when we talk about sitting at the table with everybody, if everybody's invited. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I uh, because we don't just sit at the table. And we don't just eat when we're sitting at the table. That's the place where we have those conversations. It's the place, like you said, at meetings where Mm -hmm. I'm understanding that sitting and eating with you and talking with you, that I'm opening myself to what you have to say to me, Mm -hmm. that there's Mm -hmm. that that this the sitting at the table is also a language. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that is absolutely true that I think that there's still you know, some hesitancy to who do I want to, maybe I'm not opposed to sitting next to them while I eat a sandwich, Mm -hmm. but am I willing to open up myself to hear what they have to say? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and maybe to be uncomfortable by it. Mm -hmm. Well, and we've taken the metaphor for sure Mm -hmm. into an understanding of church leadership and things Mm -hmm. like that is who is around the the decision-making table or who Mm -hmm. is, who are on certain committees or councils or who, who, who are in those conversations. And, and so I think that metaphor of the table, whether it has to do with food and drink, um, that, that metaphor of the table is, is still very, very powerful. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, Luke's gospel is the only one where Jesus tells them to eat and drink in remembrance of him. The other gospels also have him sharing that last supper with his disciples and and explaining the symbolism of the bread and the cup. But only does Luke say, do this to remember me. And of course, that's where, you know, we've taken that as the the church, you know, for, you know, millennial now and understand that when we you know, take communion or the Lord's Supper or whatever, you know, you call the Eucharist, um, that we are in some way remembering or even reconstructing Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, how is Jesus reconstructed in how we understand that eating and drinking? Mm-hmm. How do we remake him? Well, for far too often, we, we do it in our own image, right? We, we what, what we want. And I think that's the struggle with being a disciple is getting... So for me, the liturgy of the table, the great Thanksgiving, it tells the story of Jesus in that context, what all this means. And that, in sitting at that table, that's then comes the invitation for us to come be 
have Jesus reconstructed in our lives. But I think for far too often, we create the Jesus we want to have and not the Jesus who is. I think I've heard Bishop Carter say that ours is the only communion liturgy that says the phrase, he ate with sinners. Um, as Methodists, that that is in our communion liturgy, that as you are telling the story of Jesus' life, that leads to this moment of him telling them to eat and drink and remember in that in that recounting of his life, the phrase he ate with sinners is there. So that... So are we reconstructing that? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So so every time, because that, I mean, every time every time we have communion, um, the, the one piece, you know, we do different liturgies and we differ, do different pieces at times. You know, we we do at least start with on the night that he was betrayed. And so mm-hmm. on that night, you you think about all of those, the, 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 that story is generally retold of, of, you know, he came for these reasons, he did these things, he taught these things and there's a reason that that recounting of his life is told every time we come to the table so that when he says in remembrance of me you you have an understanding of what you are are remembering what you are are coming to the table to be filled to then go and do I think too we're we're reconstructing the incarnation story in that it's ordinary bread and cup which is at every single meal and you know it's that it's it's the manger it's the it's the feeding feeding trough that he was born into and 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 the and the ordinary hay that animals ate is the place where where god became incarnate among us and so we're reconstructing the entire story not just the story of that night um, in the elements in that there's that we are sometimes the shepherds that in, are invited, and if we go to another gospel, sometimes we're the Gentile, uh, wise, men. wise yeah. people that are invited, and yeah, and that we're called sometimes to be the angels that are doing the proclamation and the inviting, and so I think it's I think it's all the stories mm-hmm. that get retold. Mm. I like that. I, it makes me think about what we discussed a few weeks before about Luke telling Theophilus to pay attention to those emotions that the story produces and those little nuances mm-hmm. and, and how we were, we were talking about there are these manger moments, you know, but even here we see that looking at something as ordinary as a piece of bread mm-hmm. and a cup of wine, all of a sudden um, for someone who's read the story and let the story permeate who they are, that can never be just an ordinary cup, like life itself, right. just the eating and drinking of every day, the raising of children, the going to work, all of those things can never be anything but sacred because Jesus walked those ordinary everyday paths and did it as the ultimate human being. And so every every piece of bread is this holy banquet. Right. And no one was turned away from his table. That's the thing. People who we would turn away from the table. We're not turned away by Jesus, which is the ultimate. And, you know, what does it mean to really serve? Because before the table, he, he washed their feet too. I mean, you just, there's, I know that's another gospel story, but it's the whole presence. That's the whole story all added together. It's all added together. And it, it, it makes a difference. It makes a difference. Well, and all of the people that he said, I have desired to eat this meal with you. When you said on the night our Lord was betrayed, he was betrayed by all of them. It was not just by Judas, but they all deserted. And so I think it's beautiful because when we say this is the table the Lord sets and we all, all of us traitors get to come and eat at this table. And 
that's a that's a beautiful image that we all come with our imperfections and our failures, and yet the Lord is the host of that table. And so I think it's funny how you said that we want to make it in our own image, and we're like, we want to decide who gets to come and who right. who, who doesn't. Um, but it's very interesting that sometimes I think we, we get too big for our britches, and we think, oh, this is this is our table. And I'm like, no, no, that's, that's his table. I'll tell you what, if he doesn't want someone there, we'll let him tell them, mm-hmm. and we'll just wait and see if that happens. You know? It recalls uh, <laughs> Psalms 23, prepares a table before my enemies, right? There's this... This is the Lord's table, mm-hmm. and 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 I love the the part of our liturgy um, that is then the invitation mm-hmm. that we make that proclamation that it's not St. Luke's table, mm-hmm. it's not the United Methodist Church's table. Right. This is the Lord's table, mm-hmm. and so we don't determine mm-hmm. who's not welcome. We are called to welcome um, and to come and feast. Well, and and then getting, let's go deeper into the Wesleyan piece of it is we have an open table because we believe this is a place where you can be transformed simply by eating and drinking. Mm -hmm. So, so I think that goes into some of this conversation of, of sure, when Jesus sits and eats with people, Jesus is there, which is kind of a big deal. And so he's probably a big part of that transformation. But the idea that, that simply taking this bread and this cup that can actually transform you into a space of, of belief, into a space mm-hmm. of, 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 of understanding and of, of, of embracing this gospel message. Um, that, that is our reason for being an open table, is that you don't have to actually show up with everything figured out. Mm-hmm. Um, you just have to want to come and receive, and, and that by simply doing that. So yeah, let's talk about the power of food and drink. <laughs> I think we've all seen that transformation too. The, that um, my little church in the mountains of Georgia, when I was in seminary, um, our attendance grew, and and it was by twenty three people. We had seventy five, right? It was, but there were two families in particular who came once because of another family thing, but it was Communion Sunday, and the fact that they were invited, they had never heard that before in their lives. That they were, they could have communion, mm-hmm. um, and we see that time and time again here too. When we, that it transforms people's life. I am, oh, I don't have to check off boxes. I don't have to be at this amount of attendance. I don't have to give this amount of money. I, I'm, I'm welcome to feast with you. And I think we can do the same thing socially mm-hmm. as we are the church with people. Like we talked about earlier, that yeah, we, let's go have, let's go grab Panera or some Chipotle together. Mm-hmm. You're, you're welcome at my table. So our, our core value we're talking about this week is service. <laughs> where does that connect with some of this conversation? Because I, I, I hear it, but where are we, where are we making that connection with food, food and drink and service? I think that's why I struggle. Because while the, the, the conversation we just had is about transforming our lives and hearts, the truth is we're not inviting people to the table who need actual just food mm-hmm. they just need food mm-hmm. <laughs> and 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 that 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 is a part of his ministry too around mm-hmm. food and table yes. was that it wasn't always at somebody's house or at a dinner table it was when they didn't have enough they shared so everybody had enough and therefore lives were transformed 
transformed and the equaling and leveling out that we talked about the week before, you know, I think Jesus was very concerned about that. And, and, and so there's the spiritual element around the Lord's table, but then there's this whole social element that happened at all the table, other tables he gathered at or the tables he set in the middle of a field Mm -hmm. and things like that. And I think we forget that. But mm-hmm. that's exactly why we talk about worship as rehearsal for life. Right. So that, so that that is something that as we come and we see a modeled table where everyone is mm-hmm. included mm-hmm. And, and everyone yes. does have food, we go, oh, I'm doing this so that I'm watching out for who doesn't have a seat right. at the table mm-hmm. and who doesn't have food in the world. So mm-hmm. thinking about that, that rehearsal for leading our lives yes. in, in loving God in worship. Mm-hmm. Great example in Luke's telling of how Jesus feeds the 5,000. Um, it says that Jesus actually didn't multiply the loaves. He broke them and it said, and then he handed it to them, mm-hmm. the disciples. Mm-hmm. Right. When the bread started multiplying, it was in their hands. Right. Um, and that that's a miracle that, and what's interesting is only in Luke's gospel does it say Jesus taught the people about the kingdom of God. And I've always wondered, was this multiplication in the hands of the disciples, was that the object lesson? Was that the right. demonstration of the teaching of you do this? I'll, I'll, I'll get it going, but this is something that ultimately it's up to y'all, you know, it's, it's in your hands. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So that's, I love that, that preparation and practice for how we live our lives in the world. So food and drink, it's a good thing. (laughs) And that's uh, where we're stopped today because we have more to talk about next week as we move into what does it mean um, to have the withness in our salvation? 